Hi, this is Esther, and you're listening to the Sometimes Always Book Club. We are reading Watchmen by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. This is Chapter 1. At Midnight, All the Agents. Let's go around a circle and just this doesn't have to be weird like a college class where we're talking about <laughs> you know getting to know each other or anything let's go around the circle and just tell me who you are and the first time you read Watchmen and what you thought of it and since John is coming through Skype let's start with John sure so my name is John and I first read Watchmen maybe as many as 20 years ago you know at the time I thought it was important for the medium and technically really impressive and it left me somewhat cold I've been a huge Sandman reader and uh, not much else in comics. And so I think I really responded to Neil Gaiman's romanticism and the Dickensian exaggerated sort of theatrical quality of his characters. And Watchmen was a much different book compared to what I had been reading at the time. I'm Bob. I first read Watchmen about two years ago. I had put it off for years because I was not a graphic novel guy. I didn't grow up on comic books. I didn't grow up on superheroes. Had no interest whatsoever. But what intrigued me about it is everybody knows Superman, everybody knows Batman, and, and they ebb and flow in their popularity and movies and everything. But everybody seemed to know Watchmen but me. And the difference was you didn't see, you know, like you see the bat symbol everywhere. You saw the Superman symbol everywhere. You didn't see anything about Watchmen, but yet everybody knew about it. And it blew my mind. So I picked up a copy in a, a resale shop at one point and decided, what the hell, I'll give it a shot. And it blew my fucking mind. Uh, it was like nothing I had ever experienced. And it wasn't where I ex expecting, you know, more of an illustration of what the story was telling us. And this was the, the there were so many layers to the story that wouldn't be there without those illustrations. They, they couldn't be verbalized any other way. And the theatrical uh, aspect of the whole thing, I just, I, I never knew I could get that out of a graphic novel. So it, it opened my eyes to that. And in reverse of, of John, that led me to... Sandman a couple years later and from hell and things like that. So it really did open my eyes to, uh, to a whole new world. I'm Anne. I read Watchmen for the first time this week. I finished it last night. And the thing that I really liked about Watchmen was that at no point I was absolutely certain what was going to happen next. I read so many books and so many things within the same genre that have so many tropes that you're like, oh, well, this is obviously going to happen. This person's obviously going to hook up with them. And at no point when I was reading Watchmen did I ever know what was going to happen next. Everything kept me surprised. That's an awesome review. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I was also disappointed when uh, Moloch and Rorschach did not end up getting <laughs> together like that tension to tease. <laughs> <laughs> I still ship. It's true in my heart. <laughs> Uh, hi, my name is Zach. I read Watchmen because the trailer dropped for the uh, Zack Snyder film when I was just getting into high school, and it blew my mind in half. Uh, I was like this super impressionable like little like dweebo and was like, 
reading Green Lantern and like Captain America, but I was like, what the hell is this? This is so cool. And uh, I went out to our local bookstore and I bought a copy and I read it in two days and I was like, I don't get it, but it was sweet. There was boobies and a penis and there was like people exploding and like, oh! and I've just kept reading it and like into my like now mid 20s I'm like learning to appreciate this a lot more and like going through it now for this it like really brought even more layers out that I had never even seen and like how connected it is and it just yeah I mean it you know as a uh, the goober millennial here it was like you know, I didn't have exposure to it, and you know, until that movie happened. Uh, so yeah, yeah. And the, the, thank you, Zack Snyder, for one good thing. <laughs> uh, my name's Devin. I picked up Watchmen maybe about a year ago, and then I got about a chapter or two into it, and I was so superhero oriented that I put it down because I was like, oh, there's only one guy with powers, and he's blue and naked all the time, and it just didn't catch my attention. And then about two months ago, I actually committed to it and decided to actually look at it from a different point of view, honestly see why this was rated one of the top 100 novels, let alone graphic novels, uh, according to Time Magazine. And I, the, the profiles of the characters and just kind of like the psychology and the way that they make decisions, it matches the way that they think. And you can tell who's talking, even though it's just a little blurb in the top right or top left of every thing and i loved it honestly my name is andrew my first exposure to watchmen actually was the movie when that came out and you know i was slightly older than zach thanks for that reminder um <laughs> but yeah i was just like it starting college when when my when i was exposed to that i liked the movie but it did kind of leave me I don't know. I guess cold would be a good idea. I tend to gravitate kind of towards more like overall, like kind of positive stuff. I do appreciate things that have like a grim aspect to it. But the way that the movie, at least in my memory of it right now, the way that it was presented just was a little too dark for my taste. Now, I'll I'll be fully honest. I still haven't finished <laughs> Watchmen as of this talking, but I am most of the way through. Get out. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> And I've, I'm enjoying it a lot, and I'm, I'm seeing a lot of layers to that, um, you know, aspect of psychology and darkness and philosophy that was kind of, you know, there in the movie a little bit. But I'm really digging my claws into it more now and appreciating, you know, how this format is, you know, putting that, pulling that all to the surface of what may have been just, you know, missing from the movie due to it being kind of tough to do <laughs> in some aspects. We will talk about the movie further down the line, for sure. Nice. Yeah. I don't know if I'll be... <laughs> I'll just be like, oh, I do kind of remember that part. That <laughs> I haven't seen it. I'm Katie. <laughs> um, I'm Katie, and I read The Watchmen. I grabbed it for a plane ride to San Antonio, Texas, and read it on the way there, and then on the way back and finished it. I really like how it goes and shows... Or like It highlights the differences between the 60s and the 80s and the progression of society from there. And um, the generational differences and the mother and the daughter part of it, too, and how they both deal with their character, which is the same character, but separately. And I'm Esther. I read it for the first time a couple of years ago. And much like Bob, I was never really into comics. In some ways, I feel like I've, I'm not in any way qualified to have a podcast about a graphic novel because I'm not really a comics person. I was a 
Sandman fan when I was younger, like John. I read a few other, I read From Hell by Alan Moore, which I also really love. And I read Watchmen for the first time a few years ago. And it was the same kind of thing. It's not really a genre that I'm super familiar with, but something about it was just so good. It's so cinematic. It's so well-written. It's so layered. It's so well-drawn. And just, I think it's one of those perfect storm things where everything happened absolutely perfect and it all came together and made this story. I do feel that there are some, it is a flawed thing in some ways, but the good in it outweighs the bad so much that... I'll be interested to see what you bring up as... um evidence of the band. Yeah. Yeah, I would love to well, see that. Well, it's like, not oh, really. It's, I got some things. Esther <laughs> with a hot take. <laughs> oh, good. This won't just be a few people just saying the same yeah, thing it's, over it's and over. It's great. <laughs> There's at least one actual error in chapter two. Oh. Like spelling? No. Yeah, in a title. <laughs> a rustling of pages yeah. right now. I, I, oh, God, I oh, did God. notice one in one of those like in-between chapters kind of things, but it was it was like kind of in a typewriter okay. format, so I assumed it was intentional because yeah, of how that's typewriters possible. can. No, happen. it's not a big deal. No, we'll get to it in chapter two. It's not even a big deal, and it's not even something that I think most people would notice. It's just a, <laughs> a little tiny thing. Chapter one at midnight. All the agents in this chapter, we are introduced to our main characters and given a glimpse into their relationships with one another. It plays out in a typical storytelling fashion. An event happens that causes a character to visit other important characters in the hopes that someone can shed light on what happened or at least offer some insight into the situation. The opening image is the iconic smiley face with the drop of blood, which becomes, it's an image that's revisited again and again and again in some subtle ways, some not so subtle ways um it's become you know it's just the symbol of watchmen at this point is the smiley face with the blood the story begins with two cops investigating the death of a man named edward blake in this world masked vigilantism was outlawed in 1972 and the only remaining vigilantes are government sponsored except for one rogue named rorschach who is described as crazier than a snake's armpit and i had to put that quote in there because it makes me laugh i wrote that one down too <laughs> that's a good one they walk past a man on the street carrying a sign that says the end is nigh, which seems to disturb one of the cops for reasons he can't explain. There is some brilliant world building and foreshadowing happening in just the first few pages. And it's amazing to me how much exposition and detail can be packed in. Every single panel is used. Nothing is wasted. What blows me away, though, that's actually one of the first things that, that caught my eye is how that entire opening sequence happened with the pulling up. And this is mirrored later on. But with the pulling up from the from the button in the gutter all the way up to the top of the skyscraper, mm-hmm. which wasn't just a transition for the the reader or viewer, but it was how the story progressed too, and yeah. then actually followed the the cops back down through the elevator Almost and everything. But as if like a rewinding time kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yes, like mm-hmm. here it is. Yeah, I also was, like how it cut between to kind of flashbacks of what actually happened and what the detectives were and you, deducing. <laughs> you can tell it's a flashback just with the, the red tint over it and so that's another interesting element that I didn't see the first time I read it. Right. Yeah. And it's and it also like puts it's like uh, the way that the panels are built is exactly how the rest of the comic is laid out. It's always these like like three pan, like this nine by or three by. It's a nine three, panel. Yeah, yeah, nine panels. Yeah, and then sometimes they'll stretch them, and sometimes they'll warp them. But it's almost always that, and it's and it does like the alternating, like 
between two and it's like such a theme throughout the whole thing and it just establishes that all within like the first like four pages of this whole thing yeah and i think that when it does deviate from that it's always important and you notice it because you're so used to the nine panel that when it changes into something else there's like a important way i mean it's always it always wants you to focus on this moment exactly pause and take a closer look exactly we meet Rorschach, who's a masked vigilante who climbs up buildings with a grappling hook and wears a trench coat and fedora, like a noir detective version of Batman. He scales a building and breaks into Edward Blake's apartment, and he finds a secret panel in the closet that exposes a vigilante costume with a mask and a framed photograph of several other masked vigilantes. And from that picture, we transition to the same picture in the home of a guy named Hollis Mason. And through his interaction with the person that he's with, we find out that it's Hollis Mason and a guy named Dan Dryberg. And Hollis was the original Night Owl, who was a costumed hero who fought crime in the 40s up until the 60s, I think. Dan took over the role from Hollis and became Night Owl 2. So for the purposes of the outline in my notes, I refer to them as Night Owl 1 and Night Owl 2, even though they're not actually called that. Dan goes home to his very nice brownstone to find Rorschach sitting in his kitchen. He tells him that someone threw the comedian out of a window and that there is a mask killer going after costume heroes. And through their conversation, it's revealed that they used to be partners. And Dan quit. Dan seems remorseful. Uh, and Rorschach leaves. And it, there's like a tension between them as he goes. As Rorschach continues and Rorschach seems to have lost some respect for Dan in some ways because he quit. I kind of like the contrast between the two characters where, although Rorschach obviously isn't like advertising who he is to the world in terms of like his identity or, you know, he's trying to avoid getting caught since, like you mentioned, it's illegal what he's doing. Um, I do like the contrast between him having embraced what he's doing and wanting to continue going about it. And then you see in these panels little bits of regret. Like like mm-hmm. you said, for from Dan and kind of almost like hiding away all of his past life and kind of keeping it closed away. I just kind of thought that that was like an interesting, especially when you kind of go more into depth later in the book about like the root of them all teaming up together mm-hmm. and doing all this stuff together and seeing how one has moved on potentially and the other person has not. And it's also mirrored by the by this panel right here, the one where it's him looking at the the smiley face and mm-hmm. it's like there's there's the costume like it's right behind him like his shadow like man i I could do it like i could but i but i won't what what am i doing you know Mm -hmm. just that regret kind of is like so deep i think a lot one of the the themes that runs through it has a lot to do with just identity and what that other persona means to you Mm -hmm. because as you know, we learn with the different characters, some of them, that is who they are. Some of them, that's who they're forced to be. Some of it's, it's a very um, important theme that runs through. Some embrace it and some repress it to yeah. a point yeah. where they just don't even want to, yeah, go back to it. There's a, one of the other notes I had, like right as Dan is leaving Hollis Mason's place, he's leaving and there's like a spray painted, like who watches a watchman. It's like, oh, foreshadowing. But then the sign on the final panel of page nine it's uh obsolete models a specialty as he's like walking home and it's like oh yeah him and hollis are both they're, they're, they're relics they, they don't they don't matter in this world anymore you know they're they're they're, they're obsolete i yes. think that emphasizes all those little details because i just reread this from my notes the other night and i read that sign and that didn't key to me and as I know, soon as you said I, it i was like <gasps> just like taking notes i've just been like whoa why have i missed this this whole time <laughs> yeah. i was gonna say too with the um 
I think, I don't know if you want to call it thematic, but one of the things I really love about this through the entire story is the way it constantly plays with du- duality. And that, that Rorschach and uh, Dan Dreiberg character uh, arc is indicative of that. Just beginning with the blood on the smiley face, you know, throughout the entire thing from the cover on is with that, that battle, that uh, it's a duality of yeah. anything, to, you know, two sides to everything. It kind of gives you the entire spectrum. I, Bob, I think that brings up a good point um, in terms of the the smiley face with the blood on it and the, the relevance to duality. I also thought um, that Moore was making a little bit of a comment on superheroes and comic books in general, that maybe they were superficial the way a smiley face is. And he was like, look out assholes. We're going to bring some blood. Here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and there's so much you can read into a lot of these dualities too. It's kind of what you, it's like any type of art too. It's what you take from it and, and your personal view on that. And you just kind of, throws the question out there and lets you observe and digest and take as you will. Well, and I think it kind of like sets you up. If you've read other traditional comic books, there's always like a good guy. And when I first started reading this, I'm like, okay, which one's supposed to be the good guy? But none of them are. They all are battling with, am I good or am I evil? Is what I'm doing what I should be doing? Is it helpful? Is it not? And I I really enjoyed that through all of it because there's never one time where you're like, okay, that's definitely the guy we're (laughs) supposed to be rooting for. (laughs) It makes it more real. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. That's really interesting. And it's interesting, too, that he chooses to start with Rorschach, who I think most of us probably don't feel that sympathetic toward. Although, Andrew, you mentioned that he's your role model in terms of his cultural beliefs and <laughs> <laughs> that was before we'd started recording. Why are you exposing me like this? <laughs> I told you that in confidence. <laughs> well, I feel like that's a good litmus test is who's your favorite Watchmen character. And if they say Rorschach and because they agree with his philosophies and that he's an awesome guy, then maybe uh, that tells you what you need to know about that person. <laughs> it's almost like the character is a Rorschach test. Oh. Oh. <laughs> Although it's kind of a trick question. Who's your favorite? And each one of them, you know, other than maybe Dan, you could kind of, you know, take a negative out of. Yeah, well, Dan, he's lame. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that, that literally is his negative. He's so boring. <laughs> like, I would not kick it with him. <laughs> no way. I love John's apathy. <laughs> <laughs> he's got a certain Zen quality. I think my, my honest favorite is uh, Silk Spectre, is Lori. Yeah. I do love her because I can relate to her in some ways. I think she's so boring. <laughs> she's like whiny the whole time. Like I can just so, relate. I can relate like, to yeah, Lori on some levels absolutely. because of the, she has a very complicated relationship with her mother. And I feel like a lot of women understand that complicated relationship when you're a grown up trying to deal with your parent. And you she has brown hair. And yeah, she's got dark hair and we're just exactly alike. Her character does like grow on me like throughout. She like progresses and stuff. But in the beginning. I'm, oh, she's so she just kept whining. (laughs) (laughs) Rorschach visits a bar to see if anyone has any information about the death of Edward Blake. The bartender seems nervous at his presence, which implies that he does this kind of shit regularly, (laughs) or at least is infamous for his unpredictable nature. He breaks the guy's fingers, but doesn't get any information, so he leaves. It's kind of a weird scene that just to establish that he's kind of incompetent. <laughs> well, I was going to say unpredictable, but yes. Bonkers. I, I was, I don't know, this is the first one that sat uneasy with me because first I thought it was kind of like John was saying with the smiley face. I thought this was uh, Alan Moore's way of kind of, this was the first one that felt comic bookish to me this scene with the guy making the lame joke and Rorschach coming up behind him. And it was, and it it almost felt to me like he was poking at 
comic books with this one, and then suddenly breaking fingers and going, okay, fuck you guys, we're taking it to another level. But also, what made Rorschach pick this bar and these random people to start beating up because he thinks he's going to get his answers? Where, where did he come up with that? It does seem like a weirdly random scene. Yeah, I'm just going to walk into a yeah. business and start breaking fingers until somebody like, tells me what I want to know. Yes, right in this Walgreens. You, sir, give me your fingers. <laughs> yeah. well, for me, I felt it just kind of fed into his worldview where he clearly views himself and maybe a select few above everybody else in terms of morality. And since everyone else is down in the muck, it really wouldn't matter where he would go into because he assumes they're all connected by their dirty nature. That's yeah. that's very good. I mean, he breaks a couple fingers, walks out of the bar and goes, oh, those human cockroaches. Those guys yeah. were real assholes. In my notes, I literally wrote, Rorschach goes into a bar for info and breaks a man's fingers for literally no reason. Shows how bonkers he is. That's it. <laughs> there absolutely was a reason. It was that goddamn terrible deodorant joke. <laughs> but it also, at the same time, shows that the criminal community is scared of him, too, because he's crazy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely establishing. It was yeah. just a little... He has no friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wonder why. <laughs> so, after going to the bar, Rorschach goes to speak to Adrian Vite, a.k.a. Ozymandias. Rorschach tells him about what happened to the comedian. Adrian Veidt says that the comedian had plenty of enemies. Rorschach takes offense to this, stating that the comedian had honor and would never sell out, implying plenty about his opinion of Ozymandias, who has merchandised and marketed his superhero persona into action figures. From there, Rorschach visits the Rockefeller Military Research Center, and we are introduced to Dr. Manhattan, a giant blue man. It's less ridiculous than it sounds. And his... <laughs> Well, this, this is where we meet Dr. Manhattan and his fat man and little boys. <laughs> I told you I had a make, joke set for that. Make sure I was waiting for that. Make sure you this. There's just a really good snare roll after that. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you, John, for laughing. And his companion, Lori Uspechik. Oh, I thought you were still talking about his penis, sorry. No, not his penis. <laughs> no, his companion. His penis yeah, companion. I feel like later. Girlfriend sounds so stupid when you're... But... <laughs> a.k.a. Lori Jupiter, a.k.a. Silk Spectre 2. Dr. Manhattan, a.k.a. John, is unmoved by the comedian's death due to his completely logical mind. He's just so apathetic about everything. Lori is glad to hear of his death, saying that Edward Blake tried to rape her mother back when they worked together on a vigilante team known as the Minutemen. I would like to take this moment to say, at least for me, when I was starting to read through... Uh, because this is my first time reading through this whole story, this kind of was a humongous red flag to me because... Earlier in one of those brooding scenes with Rorschach, where he is kind of inner monologuing or writing excerpts from his journal, discussing how he's someone that won't compromise and is someone that bad is bad. I'm going to punish it, even if nobody else will do it, you know, thinking that he's the one doing the good stuff. And in his commentary with Silk Spectre talking about the comedian when she brought up a very reasonable big flaw in that guy's life, he just kind of brushed it off and was like, I'm not really that concerned with this particular moral lapse of this this overall nice guy to kind of sum up what he was. Because I think this part, it has to do with his just black and white view of everything. So Mm. he sees Edward Blake for whatever reason as this patriotic guy. So he's going to not pay attention to this actual thing that's like a a really serious Mm -hmm. character flaw and a terrible thing that this person did. He's going to just kind of go, yeah, well, whatever. Well, and Rorschach has a very complicated relationship with women in general, yes. so I feel like he really doesn't give a fuck what happens to any of them. <laughs> That's true. That <laughs> well, is to me, true. though, I feel like that just kind of fed into, at least for me while I was reading it, my 
dismissal of his actual sense of morality or what his, yeah. his perceived sense of morality is because yeah, black and white too. implies no gray and here he is applying some gray mm-hmm. with this person. Uh, which he does several times actually. Yes. Yes. I mean he says he doesn't but he does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's uh, there's another part that like right as he's getting into the Rockefeller Research Center he like talks about he like monologues about um, the fates of all the superheroes and stuff and he like looks back with like such disdain and like the other Silk Spectre was like a, is now like a, a bloated aging whore dying in a Californian rest resort you know Dollar Bill was shot Every the comedian is dead and, and just going through it it seems like he's the only true hero and like sees himself as that throughout this whole thing and he's like well I guess I get to go meet the man who is like Superman essentially but is he really even a hero too and I, I kind of love that that monologue a lot because it really does kind of give you that insight on how Rorschach views everybody else that is a superhero no I'm the only one doing this y'all are fakes like I'm still out here in the streets busting caps in people's legs you know <laughs> a, real, a real hero busts into places and eats beans you know human bean juice we can never measure up to this <laughs> Rorschach defends Blake saying he was a hero and a patriot as we just discussed mm-hmm. Lori, upset, asks John to get rid of him. Dr. Manhattan teleports him out of the research center into the yard mid-sentence. Rude. (laughs) Lori decides to call Dan and ask him to dinner. Lori and Dan talk about her relationship with John in the old days when they were all masked vigilantes together. Yeah, you also skip the boobs in the window. You just kind of... Yeah, he just (laughs) went right over that. Yeah, he's just like, whatever. I think it's important... um, the whole thing about Dr. Manhattan teleporting him out of the research center because of how casual the whole scene is, it just really establishes in a quick way the extent of his ability and how it's really not a big deal to people who know who he is and what he can do. The character of Dr. Manhattan. Mm-hmm. It's and it's specifically just... not a big deal to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It just is. His powers just Yes. Are. But Rorschach isn't upset. He kind of has this... Huh. Like, oh, <laughs> <perm>. <laughs> yes. I do love, too, by the way, your Cliff's Notes. Because if nobody had read this book and they're listening to this, that's just Dr. Manhattan teleports him out of the research center of the yard outside mid-sentence. Lori decides to call Dan Dryberg. That is not a logical <laughs> next step. <laughs> well, we're done with that. I'm going to call my other boy. Kind of lame, but he's a nice guy. <laughs> and he does own a house in New York City, which is pretty amazing. <laughs> and he would probably pay for dinner. It's so. <laughs> <Come> true. <laughs> Lori and Dan talk about her relationship with John in the old days when they were all masked vigilantes together. Lori says her mother pushed her into it and she never wanted to be a crime fighter. She says she regrets it all and Dan agrees, but it's obvious that they both miss it on some level, whatever that is, be it the actual crime fighting aspect of it, be it the camaraderie, be it the fun, be it whatever. Something about it spoke to both of them on some level and they do miss it. And this right here is that mirroring I was talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. If you look, the very last page is almost an exact mirror of the first yeah. and it's brilliant and he does nice. it a few times throughout that and I did I only caught that on this read through and that was it just blew my mind the chapter concludes with a quote from a Bob Dylan song at midnight all the agents and their superhuman crew get out and round up everyone who knows more than they do and an excerpt from Hollis Mason's memoir under the hood and we see excerpts from it a couple times where you, we learn a little bit about the original Minutemen and how the mask vigilante movement came to be he talks about going from a mechanics kid in New York City to a cop to a mask vigilante called Night Owl he mentions an intriguing character who pops up a few more times in the book named Hooded Justice a vigilante who wore a black executioner's hood and a new 
noose around his neck, but more on him later. We don't learn a whole lot from Hollis's memoir excerpt, except just kind of what is the norm when it comes to superheroes that it's just kind of become, or in, in this world anyway, it's just kind of a way of life. They're not really superheroes, but they, they call themselves superheroes, mass vigilantes. This first part kind of confused me because I'm like, wait, what, what kind of world are we playing? And like, are these just weirdos in costumes? Or do they actually have something else going on? And it took me a little while to figure out what was what. And like, that's kind of like what I love about this too, is that it's just like, it's just dudes in tights <laughs> just fighting crime because they think it's the right thing to do. Like, that's it. Like, there's no other thing. It's just... I like how that became the logical conclusion. I, I, wanna, I don't want these wrongs to go, you know, unnoticed. So I'm going to dress up like an owl <laughs> with all of the, the technology I have and just kick some ass and that's it. Like, yeah. Well, it's kind of like kick-ass, too. It's got, like, the similar idea yeah. of dressing mm-hmm. up in tights and fighting crime. Yeah, mm-hmm. why not? Even uses the same color scheme. Mm-hmm. Speaking of color, that's, like, one of my favorite things about this, too, is, like, the weird color scheme this has. Like, just how vibrant and bright it is. And, like, no things that are, should be black are purple, like, sometimes. Mm-hmm. And, like, the way Rorschach's, like, uniform looked popping brown. And I, like... I don't know. I just love the way this is colored. It's probably like my favorite thing about this whole. I like. Book. I love the color. The <laughs> use love, of color is fantastic. It's mm-hmm. so good. Every room kind of has its own color too, and then characters have their own color too. So like you know you're with Ozymandias when it's blue and purple and yellow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When it went into the picture way earlier, and you show up in Hollis's place, Hollis' place is yellow until he ends up leaving into the alley. Like Rorschach is a lot of yellow and like yeah. I love, I just love the usage of color and like how it's used because it's like, it should feel like really gritty almost because it's so dark and like so like, but it just pops weirdly mm-hmm. like a lot. Like there's just a lot of bright coloring and like, you know, in the, in the Dr. Manhattan chapter, it's just like the best art in the whole book. It's so pretty and so well colored and like, oh, Dave Gibbons is a great artist. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's funny you bring that up because I was... I found myself trying to read too far into some things, I think, really looking for something. And opening, and I'm not going to jump ahead here, but chapter two, where we're sitting waiting to go, mm-hmm. a lot of use of red in unusual places that I was trying to figure out if it was indicative of something. But if you look through those first few pages, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, the flowers the, the on the hearse, the little um, feathers on the hearse, everybody's hats, they got the little scarves on the hats, what's-his-name's hair here... But almost every panel has a very vibrant red coming out of it. And I don't know if that was indicative or if I'm reading too much into it. But uh, Mm. just because you brought up the use of color, I'll I'll mention that that was the one spot that it caught my eye. And I was trying to see if that meant something. Does this mean something? (laughs) So just quick character discussion on what we know so far about these characters. Uh, Rorschach is an anti-hero, kind of. I I guess maybe I'm being generous. (laughs) When we first meet him, we are shown immediately that he plays by his own rules and says edgy stuff. His, <laughs> his black and white mask looks badass with his 1930s detective outfit and his clipped brief dialogue makes him seem distant and scary. He also eats a lot of sugar cubes and baked beans. My fan theory, um, Rorschach is a horse. I absolutely, <laughs> I absolutely agree. When he comes into Dan's house and Dan kind of peeks through the door because he knows somebody's there and you just see chop. Flop, short flop, <laughs> and, and you're like, "What the hell's happening?" And then you go to the next panel, and it's just Rorschach's mask gets lifted up a bit, and he's just eating. Right. <laughs> he's a horse. What I'm just saying. Doing? You know, back in the '90s, he was in a very famous TV show. 
There you go, Zach. That was a sad horse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah okay. You're welcome. Thanks, Andy. Someone's gotta someone's gotta draw a horse shack. <laughs> <laughs> now I, I have to ask though, uh, Devin, have you not ever eaten cold baked beans out of a can? I think it sounds exactly like that. You know, I had a dream as a kid that I wanted to be a homeless guy, just hop on trains and like cook some beans over trash can. So like 1920s hobo? Yeah, that was... Okay. Is there a harmonica involved? In a bindle? Yes. If you can afford it, but <laughs> no, I haven't had cold beans out of a can. <laughs> we may have some down there. We can we can experiment later, but I'm well, pretty sure... Well, that's the first are... step. Yeah, like, that's the first step. Really... Following your dreams. I'm looking forward to that recording where we're all just slurping beans. <laughs> That'll be the last episode. We'll eat yeah, we just turn <laughs> To reward everybody for their ability to listen through it's all of our stuff. night, everyone. Yes. <laughs> Next, we have Edward Blake, the comedian. We aren't given much in the opening chapter on who the comedian was. We see flashes of him being overpowered and thrown from the window. We hear from other characters that he'd work overseas as a government contracted mercenary type. We hear from Lori that he tried to rape her mother years before. Uh, he does not seem like a well liked person. Mm-hmm. Really, to anybody except Rorschach. Yeah. Uh, seems to be the only person who has good things to say about him or thinks that he's an honorable man. It's so wild. Mm-hmm. Is I think, it? <laughs> I think it's important because if you just get these details and nobody's sort of defending them, you, you kind of think, oh, the comedian is like instantly okay. a monster. Yeah. Like, there is absolutely no good. But since even though Rorschach is kind of the anti hero, there is still somebody sort of defending them. And so you're kind of thinking, well, what does he know that I don't? Like, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. this world is very gray, so maybe the comedian isn't all black. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's important for Rorschach to kind of be the, well, let's not judge too quickly. There's something else that you'll maybe learn about the comedian. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a good point. Hollis Mason, Night Owl 1, uh, introduced as a kindly old man who still loves talking about his glory days. Mm-hmm. In an excerpt from his memoir, we learn that he was a young cop who moonlighted as a vigilante and devoted his entire life to fighting crime both publicly and privately. His introduction gives us a timeline of masked vigilantism. I get the idea, like you said, he kind of introduces how the uh, the vigilantism started. And, and you know, he's our, our founding, I know not founding member, but I mean, he's, he's, he's our introduction He's one of the founding members. But at the same time, and he's a nice guy, but man, if I was Dan, I mean, Dan's a saint for going over and listening to those stories every night. <laughs> every week. I think did. it's once a week. That's that's too much. I mean, <laughs> God damn. Floored Captain Access. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we've heard it. We've heard it. Yeah, yeah, okay. Oh, you punch me in the shoulder again. That's, that's great. <laughs> got, got me home. Uh, I feel like maybe by osmosis, it helped Dan become more like an old person himself. <laughs> <laughs> by hanging out with this old guy and all of a sudden, you know, and then he's just like, oh, you know what? I don't want to be a hero anymore. I'd rather just sit down and watch the news and my stories. <laughs> I will say, you know, speaking of, of Hollis for a second, that the ancillary piece, that excerpt from the memoir, yeah, is kind of amazingly written in the sense that it's such a different style than Alan Moore's typical style. I was thinking that it, today, actually, when I was reading some of the, the little interlude pieces, and they're all so different, but no, you're absolutely right. He really has range, and and not just range, but he, he's got the ability to put on an older American voice, and it never sounds false at all. No, never. Yeah, It's kind of a, a nice break. If the comic's getting heavy, then you're like, okay, there's this this that I can read instead and kind of take away from it and with a different voice to it. Well, I like that the, the little excerpts at the end of every chapter, it almost it feels like it's evidence that this world that you're reading about is real because it's different things. 
So it like really makes it feel you're almost like, is there actually a comic book about mm-hmm. pirates out there? I know. I was when I was reading that the other day, I was thinking, that's the Tales of the Black Freighter comic sounds really good. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I think you hit on something there, and I I, uh, I felt like the first time through, I think the first one or two interludes, I was like, okay, I get it. There's some backstory here, but why are we doing this? But it's actually just brilliant world building in a way that's not going, hey, everybody, let me explain to you what's going on here or continuing on with the same characters in an expositionary piece that you're like, okay, I get it. I get it. I get it. It's it takes you out of it, like Katie said, Mm -hmm. but at the same point builds that world almost more solidly than he could have any other way. Yeah. And it's just brilliant. When I first started reading this again, when I was a dweeby little kid, I was like, well, I don't need these interludes. These don't mean nothing. Like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> and then I remember when I reread it again when I was, like, 19, I was like, oh, my God, these are great. Like, I love these. Like, the, the Hollis Mason ones are great. And, like, the one on Dr. Manhattan a little later on is, like, so fascinating. I love that one. Yeah, it's like, it, like you get a really great way of just, like, world building this, like, making this seem so much more alive and kind of filling in the cracks where, like, other characters are talking, like, oh, well, don't you remember this from the Minutemen? And it's just, like, so offhand. And then, like, it's like, well, if you read the Hollis Mason thing, it's, like, right there. Like, here's it all spelled playing out, like, lucided justice. And it's like, well, we can talk about that. Like, here you go. And it's it's mm-hmm. such a good way of doing that. Yeah. And it is way better than than some, like, really mm-hmm. clunky exposition. And, and this book does have maybe once or twice, but it's minimal. And I think that mm-hmm. the interlude chapters really kind of help to cover that information where you don't have, like, a character going, now remember that one time when X, Y, and Z happened, which it'll takes me out of a story so quick when those yeah. things, when people talk like right. that. Or like the, like, just so repetitive. And just, yeah. No, or the no. interludes or like the songs and musicals, but done really well. <laughs> or like when Family Guy cuts to a commercial and then it comes back and it's like, Lois, I can't believe you married my brother. <laughs> Dan Dryberg, Night Owl 2. Dan is a middle-aged man who seems to long for both Lori and for his crime-fighting past. His friendship and former partnership with Rorschach is interesting because when Rorschach visits him, he never takes off his mask, even when eating numerous cans of baked beans. <laughs> Dan also never calls him anything except Rorschach, while Rorschach calls Dan Daniel repeatedly. It's just an interesting detail that makes more sense later. You gotta wonder if Dan stopped uh, buying baked beans, if Rorschach would have stopped coming around. Oh. He'll have the sugar cubes. Yeah, he does yeah. eat the sugar cubes. You know, but he can control it with his yeah. grocery list. I mean, <laughs> I think we could all live without those. Do feelings. I sense some victim blaming here? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, he, he had the power. He had the power. <laughs> Wait till you hear Bob an issue, too. <laughs> Adrian Vite, Ozymandias. We don't know much about Adrian Veidt at this stage, except that he's a wealthy businessman with a line of action figures based on himself and an empire of products. He and Rorschach don't seem particularly close, nor do they show any real mutual respect. Do you remember when I started that line of action figures based on me? <laughs> yeah, I'm still trying to get that off the ground. <laughs> I'd buy one. Can I get your autograph on one? <laughs> on the tushy? <laughs> Dr. Manhattan, the most mysterious character we've encountered so far. He's blue. He glows. He lives in a government research center with his girlfriend. He is the only character we've seen thus far who has superhuman abilities. When we first see him, he is gigantic and working on a huge machine. And naked. And and naked, yes. As Rorschach speaks to him, he shrinks back down to normal human size. He also has the ability to teleport Rorschach from the building with little to no effort uh, to Rorschach's disappointment rather than amazement. This brief introduction and interaction gives the reader a hint at the sheer power he possesses. Which um, 
I know you're going to talk about because I know you're absolutely intrigued by it, but it's probably my, what, what I think is the most brilliant thing about this book is how more got into the head of a creature like that and really looked at the psychology of how that would change you entirely, your, your entire yeah. process of thought. It isn't just like, hey, I can do this stuff, so here's X, Y, and Z, I can do it. I mean, it was a complete, it, it completely removed him from humanity. And I think he really delved into that well. It's got to be hard to write a character like that with zero limitations. You're like, you can do anything in the world. So what is your weakness? Do you have right. one? What do you do if you don't have one? And it's I always cool thought, how they worked with that. I always thought that chapter was like the most boring. I always mm -hmm. thought it was so lame. And like, I'll, I'll touch on that a little later, but I, I was just like... <sighs> reading the whole thing and and now i'm like oh my god this is so good and like again just rereading it now like every time i've reread it it's always been like there's so much new that i can find out of this every single time no you're absolutely right and i'm the same i've reread it yeah i've read it several times now and and i find something new or something just some little detail or something that is interesting to me every single time and now rereading it with i mean really reading it taking notes on it reading other people's opinions on it watch there's all kinds of stuff out there to read you know this is this might be one of like the most discussed graphic novels ever oh, yeah. people have a lot to say about it and people have a lot of opinions about it and i think that's kind of amazing just because of the ambiguous ending which we'll discuss eventually it it's perfect because so many people take it in such different ways like i was saying earlier that's it's like he puts it out there for you like like any piece of art and mm -hmm. you take from it what what you understand and what fits to your you know understanding of, yeah. of yeah. the whole thing. But my understanding's the right way. Yes. <laughs> it is for you, Katie. <laughs> Lori. Lori Uspechik is seems to be a fairly normal person aside from her superhero past. She's in a relationship with Dr. Manhattan, whom she refers to as John, and her mother was also a crime fighter back in the old days. She has a lot of anger in her dialogue and gets instantly upset at the mention of the comedian. Esther, what is normal about having a giant blue sugar daddy? <laughs> I was just going to say, she's absolutely normal, except she's fucking a god. <laughs> she's, she's not paying her own bills. She's not working. She's literally no. just fucking him. But she's a normal person in that she, she just, I don't know. She strikes me as a normal she's person. Got nothing to do but nag all day. <laughs> <laughs> but also, like, back to the colors and a lot of the bright red that you were talking about earlier, it was, like, her vest and she's, like, an angry person and angry mm -hmm. about the world and everything, so I thought that was kind of reflective. She in is. Color. Well, I mean, the anger, uh, that's definitely there. But also when you have it in contrast to Dr. Manhattan, oftentimes mm -hmm. people use red to convey passion, which is an aspect of Dr. Manhattan's character that I feel is just like you have that contrast there with her where she has her perspective on their relationship and his presence or lack of presence in it. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a cool another reference to duality that Bob was bringing up before. Yeah. That's awesome. That's, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's great. Well, I've done it, guys. I've solved Watchmen. Yes, good night, everybody. <laughs> the answer was red. <laughs> and Hooded Justice. Literally nothing about him, except that he was the first costumed hero. He wore an executioner's hood and a noose around his neck, which seems like a bad idea for a costume, but whatever. <laughs> I like him. <laughs> well, no, I'm just saying we don't yeah. know anything about him yet. It's marginally better than a cape. In terms of you were a cape too, though. Oh shoot, you're right. Cape <laughs> and a noose. Read closely, Andrew. <laughs> no, I was, I was kind of like my, you know, vague reference to color. Uh, I was also looking at this and wondering, with with such a spectrum of characters, all being grouped together by their you know chosen profession, so to speak, or hobby, if you want to call it that. But they're all so different, and I wonder if it was some sort of attempt at 
a, a kind of a cross cut of society. If, if Moore was kind of trying to include a little bit of everyone, they yeah. got one girl. That's good. <laughs> and <laughs> got her their mother. token girl. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking more character types. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't get into the, the psychology of each enough to kind of go, well, this is what I think each one stands for. But yeah, I think there's a wide enough cross section that I wonder if that's what he was going for. Just a a theory. And especially later you get into different like ethics philosophies yeah. with different characters. But yeah, I was thinking that too with their yeah, philosophies. What, yeah, that's a really smart way of thinking about it because like, yeah, like Rorschach could mean, you know, like the disadvantaged, you know, lower lower class kind of people and Dan's like the middle class and Laurie is kind of like that upper and then Vita's obviously this like model. He's a 1% kind of deal and it's like, I guess where does um, uh, Dan fall in the moment? Is he's, the, uh, he's the middle class. The middle, yeah, middle class yeah. guy? Yeah. yeah. Or Dr. Manhattan. Where does oh, he's, the he's the guy. Yeah, he's the guy. He's the, he's the, the actual. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I know the audience I'm, I'm talking to here within the room anyway. We were talking about Rorschach and when you're saying he, you know, he has his, his mind set on his heroes and his honorable people and he's willing to ignore all the bad in them, right? So he represents the Trumpers. <laughs> See? So I thought you were going to say he represents chill dudes who love keeping it real. Oh, there we go. There we go. Chill dudes. Chill time. Listen, I like I'm that. just saying what needs to be said and does what needs to be done, man. <laughs> I like yeah, that he, he has. He'd, his... he'd be on Reddit today for sure. Oh, yeah. yes. <laughs> Q, QAnon or whatever Red the problem you say. Red <laughs> MGTOW. <laughs> now you're just saying words. I'm so out of the loop. <laughs> These streets are filled with cucks. <laughs> These soy boys running amok. Soy boys. <laughs> I think we've hit on something here. Yes. Okay, so that brings us to the end of chapter one. I'm going to just close this episode. We will be back next time with chapter two.